Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 37th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Paul English, who is one of the top entrepreneurs in the tech industry. Several of Paul's companies have been acquired, but he's probably best known as the co-founder and CTO of Kayak, which went public and was acquired by Priceline for $1.8 billion. Paul's current company, Lola, is a disruptive online travel service, which is focused on serving the needs of business travelers. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Paul's background in his earlier companies, the story of the founding of Kayak and its acquisition, the details on Lola, his thoughts and tips on hiring, what it was like having a book written about him, his charitable work, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. This interview is actually part one of a two-part podcast mini-series, as this interview was held shortly after the announcement of Mike Volpe joining the Lola team as CEO and Paul moving into the role of CTO. So today, we have a great interview with Paul, and then next week, you'll want to check back in because we're going to have an interview with Mike Volpe, which is his first podcast interview since taking on the role as CEO. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Paul. Paul, thanks for joining us. Sure, it's great to be here. So I have to admit, I do stalk you on Instagram, which is uh, fun fun to watch. You're usually on your boat or whatever you're doing out having dinner. But recently I noticed, uh, I saw someone singing on your Instagram stories or whatever, and it said, you know, something about Taylor. And I'm like, is that Taylor Dane from the 80s? So how <laughs> is Taylor Dane of Tell It To My Heart fame in your, uh, you know, your, your house or your, your condo or wherever you were? Yeah, it was kind of a funny story. It was just a few weeks ago, I was eating at Mastro's uh, in Seaport, where I'm frequently, and they usually have pretty good music duos there, like someone on piano and a vocalist. And I was just eating dinner by myself. And then this rowdy party of six came in, and they were kind of annoying to me because I'm listening to the band, and they were like a little bit rowdy. And then at one point, um, one of the women at the table started singing along with the band. And literally everyone at the bar like put their beard down. I was like, who the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> and there's a difference between a Berkeley student and someone who sold 75 million records. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one of her girlfriends came over to my table and talked to me uh, for a few minutes and said, hey, come meet Taylor. So I went over and talked to her. Taylor bought me dinner, which is pretty cool. And then when the band ended at 11 o'clock, I said, I live in this building. Let's just move the party upstairs. So I brought the band and Taylor and her entourage. And we um, partied till like 1 a.m., had a little, a little jam session. That is just fun. Yeah. She sounds amazing. She's a ridiculous voice. Ridiculous. So you have a love for music. Uh, so that's amazing to have Taylor Dane over here to, to have a you know sing on. But do you, uh, so when did the interest in music start? I think I started studying when I was 12. And I played um, trumpet and piano and then self-taught bass. And I played in many bands. I was a pretty serious musician in high school and college, and I played out in clubs in Boston. Um, I played at Symphony Hall. I played at the Hat Show. Um, Yeah, I was pretty serious about it. And when I went to UMass, I studied music and computers, and I wrote for 15-piece jazz band, which is pretty cool. That was a really fun experience. I mean, that was, back then, it was pre-computer-assisted composition, so I had to write it all out on my piano and by hand. And the first time the band played something that I hand wrote every part, it was amazing. Yeah, so you had really to write fun. each part. Yeah, by hand. It was kind of crazy. That is crazy. But that was really fun. And, and then what? how did you get into computers and studying computer I, science? I took um, – I went to Boston Latin High School, and we had an IBM System 34 
with Fortran and punch cards. And I learned to code when I was in seventh grade, but then got frustrated with the whole punch card thing was annoying. And then I ended up not touching a computer again for a few years. I'm one of seven, and one of my brothers, Ed English, is actually a pretty famous programmer. And in the 80s, one of the programs he wrote was Frogger. And right, so he, like, for the Atari 2600. For, yeah. Which, that's amazing. Yeah, and they sold, I think they sold 4 million copies that year. And the funny story is he was working for Parker Brothers, so they made 80 million revenue. He did the whole thing by himself, every aspect of the game. <laughs> And I think they paid him thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, but he left. He he did quite well after that. Left and started his own company and created games for a bunch of other people. But I learned. Um, I guess I got really interested in programming when Ed took it seriously, and somehow I convinced my parents to buy me a Commodore VIC twenty. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I used it for music. Um, so I was really into music and computers. And so, in fact, for my brother's company, I did sound effects design. So I did some of the sounds for his games. And then when I ended up going to college, my master's thesis was I designed a computer synthesizer just to learn how to make sounds. So I'm always interested in the intersection of music and computers. Do you know David Friend? Yeah. Like Wasabi? Just give us some more background. Yeah. Like he invented a... a, So the Who, Bob O'Reilly. Yeah. The synthesizer he created is that infamous sound. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so he's orders of magnitude beyond what I've done. I've just created something that friends of mine use. Yeah. Never really. There's this whole hidden music scene that I'm discovering through this yeah. podcast. It's, That's it's, amazing. Yeah. Because like Jeet Singh from you know, yeah, ATG. Yeah, I know and, Jeet. Yeah, so it's just this whole collection, which I guess kind of interesting to think about how music and entrepreneurship kind of play off of each other. Yeah, they're very, like when I'm writing software, it feels very similar when I'm arranging music and I'd say arranging more so than writing Um, because arranging music, you're thinking about how everything comes together. Like what are the saxophones doing? What's the rhythm section doing? One of the horns coming in. And when you're writing software, you have to think about all the different subsystems and objects and classes and how things relate to each other, particularly when you're doing real-time things like video game development. So it feels like I'm using the same part of my brain when I used to write music, and that was many years ago, and then when I would code. Let's talk about kind of the early days of your career. Um, you know, how, how'd you actually get started in you know the, the computer industry, the first jobs you had? So I worked full-time as a programmer um, during college. My story is after, so I um, graduated near the bottom of my class at Boston Latin. I was, I guess today it's say ADHD and just never did homework. Didn't really read much at all when I was in high school. Didn't read, I don't know why I wasn't into reading, but I just, I just wasn't, so I had really terrible grades. I only applied to one college, which was BC, and I got rejected. And then last minute, so I was thinking, you know, what should I do, should I be a musician, should I be a programmer? And last minute, my parents found out I could go to UMass for free because I aced my SATs. I was I tested well, but didn't do well in school. And so I went to UMass, played in the jazz band, and um, studied computer science, but worked full-time as a programmer. And I would pretty much work during the day and then go to school in the afternoons and the evenings. But I had some pretty cool jobs. Like I worked for the Air Force doing optics systems at a real-time Control for a spy plane. That was really fun. 
Um, I worked for Hemonetics and Braintree on a blood centrifuge machine doing, that was another real-time uh, application. I did video game development, sound effect development. Um, I did accounting software at, I was confused, BioRad and BioGen. BioRad, I think, is the one that I worked for in Cambridge. And then finally, as I was getting my master's degree, I was working for a small tech publishing company in Arlington called TechSet, and I worked there as a programmer. Um, and that was a really fun job. I had some amazing bosses. There was a guy named David Ray who was a mentor to me that was fantastic, for example. And they ended up going out of business. I had tried to interview to work at Interleaf back in 87. One of my professors was one of the original employees there. And he was pretty funny. He said, well, you're not strong enough to work at the, the, the core product development team at Interleaf yet, um, which I was kind of <laughs> hilarious. But then when TechSet went under, at that point, I have a master's degree, and I said, can you introduce me to the CTO? And so he introduced me to the CTO at Interleaf, and then ended up working there. Ended up running engineering and marketing, in fact, my last year there. So I was there for a total of six years. At Interleaf. And, at Interleaf. And they were like a document management. Yeah, so we sold, I mean, think of it, it was sort of pre-Microsoft Word. Think of it as a version of Microsoft Word that 100 authors writing documentation for Boeing um, aircraft would all write and how you coordinate 100 authors. Like version control. Yeah, a lot of version control, automatic um, just tabulation and table of contents and references. Managing all that when you have dozens or even hundreds of authors in some case. It's a really fun job. I was here for six years. Big part of my career. And one thing that I learned in conversations we've had in the past, so um, you hired Paul Graham, who's known for uh, you know, he had his own startup that was acquired, but he was, you know, him and his wife started Y Combinator. Yeah, the two, when I was, I think I was, I forget what my title was at that point, maybe SVP Engineering. I had two amazing interns. So Paul was finishing his PhD at Harvard, and then Jeremy Wertheimer was finishing his PhD at MIT, mm-hmm. and they both worked with me at the same time. Wow. And they were both very special guys. Yeah. It was really clear to me those guys were crazy brilliant. And, obviously and we're about the same age. I was a young VP, and they were finishing their PhDs. And then Jeremy obviously went on to start ITA Software, which was acquired by Google. Yeah. Yeah, that's an extraordinary team. Uh, so then at what point did you uh, move on and you know start building your own companies? Well, I was recruited away from Interleaf to join a startup called Netcentric in Cambridge, and we built IP telephony software. Our first application allowed people to send faxes over the internet. And back then in 1990, I think it was 94, 95, maybe let's say 95, um, doing long distance faxing was really expensive. But then with telecom deregulation, long distance prices went down dramatically. And it was no longer as big a cost saving to send stuff over the internet, to send it long distance. That company ended up imploding, I would say, due to bad management. Um, sort of a funny story. Yeah, I, I won't get into it. But there's a funny story about my departure, which I'll, I'll tell you another time. But okay. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a pretty interesting period. After that, I ended up, you know, my version of the story is I got fired there. The CEO, who I've since have become friendly with again, told me his memory is that I quit on him. But whatever happened, we had a fight at one point, which resulted in me leaving. I remember at the time I started feeling depressed, like 
wow, I thought I was a really good engineering manager, but maybe I'm not really good at that. Maybe I should go back to programming Mm -hmm. and was kind of depressed for about a year. And then after I left NetCentric, I got really interested in this Chinese game called Shang-Chi. It's the Chinese version of chess and I became obsessed with it. And I worked on a website, shangchi.com, and I must have been working 60, 70 hours a week, and I worked on it for a year. And we built tutorials in uh, Mandarin, Cantonese, Vietnamese, and English. And we had 100,000 members around the world that would play this online club. Yahoo actually approached me a year later and wanted to acquire it. They wanted me to run Yahoo Community and Yahoo Games. And I remember meeting with David Philo, one of the Yahoo founders in California. And after meeting with him, he was going to have me run an R&D lab for Yahoo. They were going to set up in Cambridge. And then after I spent some time with the team in California, they wanted me to move to California. Mm-hmm. I was married at the time. My wife didn't want to move, so I ended up turning that down. And then through a crazy set of circumstances, ended up creating my next company, Boston Light. We built an e-commerce product called QShop which allowed you to set up a web storefront. It was similar in some ways to ViaWeb, which is Paul Graham's company at the time. But ours had QuickBooks integration and really focused on um, small business. We were acquired by Intuit, where I then served as VP technology for three and a half years. And that was an amazing, amazing experience to me. Like one of the fun things about it was I got to work for Scott Cook. I actually had breakfast with Scott Cook today. He was in Boston. No way. Um, Yeah, so it's Scott and I stay in touch. But that was... um, that was a really fun three and a half years of my life working for Intuit. And then you, from what I've understood, is uh, you led the acquisition of QuickBase. Yes. Which is now a standalone company that's yeah. growing here in Boston. Yeah, that was a company I became obsessed with. It was started by an amazing guy named Joe Rice. It was originally called Turning Mill Software, and the product was called OneBase. I didn't like the name OneBase, so we ended up um, rebranding it to QuickBase. Mm-hmm. as a really, really slick web database product that even though that was created in 1997, it still today has some features which don't exist in Google Spreadsheets or other apps. So um, again, just doing my research, you, you you picked up some pointers from your, your, your dad on how to negotiate. So, yeah. so how did you work the, the negotiations with uh, your company Boston Light and ultimately get acquired by Intuit? Yeah, I mean, that was a good story. We were about a year old. I had 15 employees. I had funded the company largely myself. I remember blowing through my 401k. We didn't pay people very much and I wasn't being paid, but um, I was running out of money and we're doing biz dev with a few different companies at the time that had looked at licensing our store storefront software, including Amazon. We talked to them about how they should let small businesses create storefronts on Amazon, which they ultimately ended up doing. They called it Z Shops. Um, I was just called Q Shop. And then um, Excite, we met with, Intuit, and Switchboard were the four companies we were doing BizDev with. And I thought we were going to license our technology to these four companies. What ended up happening is, this is in the height of the dot-com, everyone really just wanted to acquire us. They all wanted to acquire internet teams. And I decided Intuit because I like the culture of Intuit, I like their corporate values, and I like Scott Cook a lot. I love Bill Campbell, who was one of the first people I negotiated with when I went to Intuit. But when it came time to negotiate the price, I remember we'd been doing a bunch of emails with Scott Cook and Bill Campbell, and they put me, uh, connected me to Kristen Brown, who's the SVP of Corp Dev, and I had a phone call scheduled with her some Monday morning. And I remember thinking at the time, 
I have no idea what we were worth. We were a year old, 15 employees, internet company. And back then I'm thinking, really bold. I'm thinking, I'm gonna ask for like $20 million. And my friends thought I was on crack. Like, how can you ask for $20 million right. when your company, you don't really have much revenue yet? We did have revenue. Boston.com was our first customer. But I called up my friend Fred Egan, who I knew from Interleaf. And he was, I don't know his exact title at ViaWeb. He worked for Paul Graham. Maybe he was VP of BizDev or Corp Dev or something like that. And I said, what should I ask and to it for my company tomorrow? And he said, I don't know. What are you thinking about asking them? I said, I'm thinking of asking for $20 million. And me thinking that's like a really bold ask. Mm-hmm. Fred goes, ask for forty. I said, why 40? I go, how can I justify that? He goes, I don't know. He goes, trust me, ask for 40. So I remember I asked for 40. Kristen said, what do you think you're worth? I said, 40 million. And I, I'm pretty sure she said, fuck you and hung up on me. <laughs> but end of the day, I closed the deal for $33.5 million. That is amazing. And, um, yeah, which, and then I ended up canceling half of my stock so the employees could have a higher percentage of the company. Right. Um, just so everyone could make a little bit of money on it. And again, it turned out to be a really important part of my career is getting to work with Scott Cook and Bill Campbell and some other people at Intuit. Craig Carlson was my direct boss, and he he became a huge mentor. I mean, he was amazing. So your employees must have been just floored. Obviously, you negotiated this great sale, but then to uh, give back to the employees, to share what your take could have been, I don't actually think I told the employees what I had done. I think when it came time to, um, when we, we took the price, we divided by the number of shares to come up with a dollar per share. But because I canceled half my shares, the price per share rose significantly. I so I just told everyone they bought us for X a share. I don't think I, I maybe this podcast would be the place where people discover that I canceled half <laughs> my shares. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll take that. Um, now, TV allowance, was that, before kayak, or was this a side project? Like, was that a? I'm a trying to think what thing? year we did that. Because um, it was a good idea. That side, we need to do now. For yeah, mobile devices. yeah, it was a side project. I met an amazing entrepreneur in Miami named Randall Levinson, mm-hmm. and the way I met him was I'd come up with this concept for a box where you plug your TV into the box, you plug the box into the wall, and the box would have a little key to lock it and a keypad. And when your kids want to watch TV, they enter in a four-digit PIN code, mm-hmm. and it gives them half an hour of TV a day or yeah. whatever. And I had two young kids, and TV was getting out of control in my house. And I, I kind of hate TV, so I had come up with this idea. And I remember looking to actually file a patent on the idea. And when I did a patent search, I found, in fact, there was a guy in Miami who had a patent for something almost identical. So I flew down to Miami to meet with him. We'd become really good friends. Mm-hmm. And helped him relaunch that business. Uh, it's called TV Allowance. It was a really cool product. Yeah, it's needed for uh, mobile devices and kids now. Yeah. All right, Kayak. Um, what's the background story of how Kayak came together? Because I've, I've heard an interesting story. of. Uh... Yeah, so what happened is I left Intuit. Um, let's see if I can get the exact dates of this. I remember my mom died in 2001 and literally her last request to me was to ask me to take care of my father and she passed away that night after she asked me that. I ended up quitting my job uh, and became the primary caretaker for my dad who had Alzheimer's and eventually he passed away and then I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and I had sold my last company into it so I had a bunch of cash in the bank and I wanted to do good things with my cash. I met a guy named Tom White, who's a builder in Boston, 
he's the uncle of a good friend of mine. And I told him I want to give away a bunch of money. What should I do? And he said, go to Haiti uh, and meet this woman, Ophelia Dahl, and then come back and see me again. So I went down to Haiti, 2003, totally changed my life. Uh, really ramped up my desire to help kind of people in need. And when I landed from Haiti back at Logan, I called up the only venture capitalist I knew, which is Bill Kaiser. He's a VC at Greylock. And I said, I want to, I sold my last company into it. I want to create another company. Um, and my thinking is I want to make way more money so I can do more to help. And I started there as an EIR and I was working there for a couple of months with uh, my friend Jim Giza, who also was formulated into it and then worked with me at Greylock. And then one day I was visiting my friend Larry Bond, my old boss from, in, from Interleaf. Uh, Larry's a partner at General Catalyst. And I was looking at a mobile company for him. And then on my way out the door, Joel Cutler, one of the other partners and founders of General Catalyst, saw me and said, what are you doing here today? I said, I'm looking at the company for Larry. And Joel said, there's a guy called Steve Hafner. He's one of the founders of Orbitz, and he's actually here today. He wants to start a new travel company. Do you have five minutes to meet with him? And so Steve and I went down to Legal Seafoods by the Charles Hotel. I think we literally had three gin and tonics each. I don't think we <laughs> ate lunch, but we had a, sort of a liquid lunch that day. Yeah. And he gave me the pitch for the original idea for Kayak, and I liked it a lot. And he said he was looking for a CTO. I said, I'll help him find one. I was running an, a mailing list at that point called Boston CTO. And then I remember I said, how much are you going to pay? He said, buck fifty and 4%. I said, that sounds awesome. I'll find you someone good for that. And he said, why won't you do it? I said, I sold my last company. I'm going to create my own company again. And he said, what would it take to have you do it? I said, I don't know, at a minimum 50-50? And he put his <laughs> hand across the table and said, done. And we went upstairs, and Steve said to Joel, the good news is I now have a 50-50 partner, and we're each throwing a million dollars in tomorrow. Of course, he neglected to mention the million dollars to me. And he said, the bad news is now that I have a co-founder, I'm worth a lot more. So I'm tearing up that turn sheet you gave me this morning. I want to renegotiate. And Joel's like, I literally introduced what? you an hour ago. What are you talking about? But that was the beginning of what began an amazing 10-year journey for me and an amazing partnership yeah. with Steve and Joel. And I, I credit Joel as the third founder of Kayak. It really was Joel and Steve and myself, the three of us who created the company together. Yeah. And obviously, the company just you know, took off, but it always seemed like the team at Kayak, like, you know, you're known for your hiring, right? That's something that, you know, you, you blogged about, you speak about. So how do you build that early foundation of such a key team that, you know, is pretty lean in consideration for the amount of revenue? I think when you were acquired, it was a million and a half per employee. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was like, um, 200 employees with 300 million in revenue. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, profitable. There was a lot that went into that. I mean, we had a, a good business model where we were a search engine that sat on top of other people's content. Mm -hmm. So we didn't need a lot of people acquiring content and editing it, which was helpful. But I think more important than that, the culture that Steve and I built from day one was very, very focused on efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like I was really focused on how meetings are run, how many people were in meetings. I generally like meetings of three people. Mm -hmm. I don't like it when there's 10 people in the room, I get really anxious because invariably there's someone looking at their iPhone, which is sucking energy out of the room if someone is distracted. Right. So to me, we were all about just efficiency and radical risk taking and just try stuff all the time and definitely ask forgiveness, not permission. Mm -hmm. And we hired entrepreneurs. I would say the first hundred employees at Kayak were all entrepreneurs. 
and we just tried to iterate and try lots of things. And the way to, way to succeed in tech is just do you know thousands of experiments to see which one works. And like the uh, other thing that I've realized over time was um, kayak. Like my background as a recruiter, I focused on hiring, uh, product management, and marketing. And uh, for a good percentage of the time, Kayak never had a, a formal product management team. You were the actual product manager for the company, right? Yeah. I mean, my title was CTO and co-founder. Yeah. I had three designers who worked for me, um, Lincoln Jackson, Yang Chan, and Cedar Michon, and they're all really great designers. Mm -hmm. And I probably, as CTO, was more the product manager. Right. Uh, probably I was more of a product manager than a CTO. In some ways, I did all the external CTO stuff. I had an extraordinary chief architect, Bill O'Donnell, who led sort of technology, architecture, and design. But I sat next to Jeff Rago, who was a, wrote 80% of Kayak's UI by himself. He's a really gifted engineer. Uh, and Lincoln and Young and Cedra. And the four of us sat together and we designed the product. And Steve, my co-founder, also was really involved in the product as well. He, it's kind of like I did the product and tech and Steve did the sales and marketing. But um, we each helped each other with each side of the business. So, uh, but that was the team. But was there like a kind of like a breaking point that you remember that you started to see the consumer adoption that this was you know going to be a, a big company? It took us a couple of years before we knew that it looked like it might work. Um, in the beginning, you know, we were making maybe twenty cents per click when people click off the site, but it was costing us a dollar to get people to come to the site. Mm -hmm. So we were just burning through cash. And we finally had this inflection point, I think, I don't remember exactly what it was, I'm going to guess year three, where our traffic started becoming self-directed. Instead of getting traffic through SEM, through Google, people just started coming to the site. And what happened is people would tell their friends about it. So rather than us having to buy ads, we'd buy ads to get the first users in, but then they would tell their friends about us. And we started getting self-directed traffic. And I remember, um, I'm not great at numbers, but I think at the time of the IPO, I remember during the roadshow, we had some crazy stat that was something like self-directed traffic was almost 70%. And by that point, we had a lot of traffic. So my, you know, one of my highlight days at Kayak, I think my best days are always when I hire people. Um, but one of my other best days was the day I realized that if you type the letter K into Google, it completes as kayak. Right. I'm like, and that's, that's pretty what you cool. Know. Yeah. That's what you know. And there's a lot of, um, you guys were advanced when it came to technology, like in browser searching with the filtering sliders and Ajax, right? Yeah. We, um, we were Ajax before. In fact, if you go to Wikipedia page on Ajax, I think it credits kayak as one of the inventors of Ajax, but we wrote all that JavaScript ourselves. We're in the libraries for it. And, we, I remember when Steve gave me his pitch for building a search engine with side on top of other sites. I went home that night and played with Expedia, and I because they're the market leader. I remember thinking this is not going to be hard to build something better than them. Mm -hmm. And I looked at Expedia as bloatware, kind of epileptic seizure inducing, and unbelievably slow. And to me, it was mind-boggling when you did a search and you wanted to refine it that you had to it did another search again. So our whole goal was if you do a search and the results from the browser. Why do you have to go back to the server? So we kind of we were one of the early pioneers. I don't think we were. I'm not saying we were the first site to do it, right. but we definitely were one of the pioneers about having all the smarts in JavaScript in the browser so that everything was instant. And obviously, the company scaled, and 
what, what was it like? You talked about the roadshow a little bit. What was that like actually taking a company public? It was really fun. I had sold two companies and for this one, we had actually many offers to sell to the company before the roadshow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, I want to take one public because I'd never done that before. It was really intense. There was a lot of prep that took months. But then the day the roadshow started, Steve and I just went out and we did it, I think, in four days, maybe four and a half days. And I think we did 100 meetings. We were you know, running meeting to meeting. We had black cars waiting after every meeting to bring us to the next meeting. We flew in a jet, private jet, city to city. And I remember Steve and I would try to figure out how not to get bored by telling the same story 100 times over. So we would take turns and I would present the commercial side of the business, he'd present the product side of the business. Or, um, I don't know, we would just kind of mess mess with each other during the presentation, trying to trip each other up. Yeah. But we also, I will say, partied pretty hard that week. So whatever city we were in, we ended up going out late. And it was not unusual for us to be out till two or later and then have to get up at six for the next morning's meetings. So we hit it hard that week and it was really, really fun. And then go meet with a bunch of investment bankers yeah. and sell kayak. <laughs> um, and then what was the duration of time? Because it was a successful IPO and kayak's doing great. And then Priceline comes around and says, yeah, I think we, you. I think we closed at $26 a share. We, we might have gone out at, again, I'm really bad with numbers. We might have gone out at $16 a share mm-hmm. and closed at 26 And then Priceline bought us at $40 a share. We negotiated it almost immediately after the IPO. It took a little while for the deal to close. Mm-hmm. And um, it cl- we took it public to 2012. Priceline closed in 2013, and I left at the end of 2013. Okay. And Priceline is a phenomenal company now called Booking Holdings, mm-hmm. and I like how they run their subsidiaries, kind of really as independent companies. But um, I didn't want to work for a big company. I wanted to start something else again. And was that uh, what brought you to start Blade initially, and now Lola? Yeah. So Blade was. The idea was I wanted to run an incubator so I could meet as many entrepreneurs as possible. Mm-hmm. And I was probably a bit manic during that first year of Blade, just really obsessed with the creativity and innovation and meeting as many people as I could. And ultimately, one day I was at a Blade board meeting and young Mi Moon from HBS was on my board, basically said she had reviewed some of our investments and she said, you've met some interesting people here, but you're probably a much stronger builder than any of the people who are investing. Why don't you just go build something again? Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the way she said it, a switch flipped in my head. And I said, all right, let's go build something. So the Blade team actually built two products that we owned 100%. One was a SurveyMonkey competitor. And the other one was a, um, a mobile assistant. And for the mobile assistant, I remember when we pitched it to Joel Cutler, Joel's like, you know, that's kind of interesting, but why don't you do an assistant for travel? And then I thought, I had told people before I would never work in travel again because I spent 10 years of my life doing it. But when Joel said, do an assistant for travel, I thought, yeah, that sounds really fun. And that thus began Lola. And we then quickly, we, I think we gave this Blade startups three months to move out. And then within three months, all 10 Blade employees were full-time Lola employees. And then we just started hiring more since then. And how has the company evolved since then? We've done two big pivots. The first one was we had um, we were doing a chat app for people to chat with a travel agent, 
And what we found is that most of our users are business users because when you travel for business and you're a frequent traveler and you're on the road and something bad happens, you want somebody to take care of it for you. Mm-hmm. And your own executive assistant, if, whether, if you have an executive assistant, is probably not available 24 by 7. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the road in another time zone, you need someone. So business travelers really like the ability of having an app where chat is integrated into the app. So that resonated. And then um, we then decided that we didn't want to be just chat-based. We wanted to give business travelers a choice between either complete the search and book yourself in the app or have an agent do it. So we added that capability, which is a rewrite of the software. And then really the second major pivot was we started talking to some of our customers and realizing that one of the big problems they had is if they had five travelers using Lola, then there were all these questions about how do you manage these five travelers and how do they coordinate with each other? And then we started getting really excited about doing lightweight travel management because if you just have two or three employees, you should let them use Kayak or Expedia or whatever they want. But if you have 10 or 20 or 50 employees all traveling, it's kind of a nightmare if everyone's doing their own thing completely because it'd be good to have guidelines and policies and expense reporting and um, named hotels. If there's, you have a field office in Chicago and you there's a hotel that you have a special deal at and you guys know that this is the hotel you want to stay at, that hotel should just show up when people search. Mm-hmm. And thus began the exploration of what is Lola today, which is all about, we have a I would say a kayak grade app. I think it's better than kayak in many ways, but we have a very simple app for doing hotels and flights and soon cars. But separate from that, if you're a CEO or an executive assistant or an administrative person, when you log into Lola, you get this kind of super user view where you see all your people traveling on the map and you get to influence how they travel. So that's really where some of the magic is. And how long has it been since you have evolved to this point? The second pivot was done one year ago. Okay. How's traction to date? It's going well um, in Boston. Frankly, uh, as you know, I just hired Mike Volpe mm-hmm. as CEO, which is a huge deal for me to move from CEO back to CTO. And Mike, I think, is really going to complete the second half of this, which is, you know, I'm an engineer and my skills are really design um, and leading product teams and engineering teams. And Mike is. He's been written about as the best marketer in Boston, but I would say, separate from that, he's one of the best B2B marketers in the country. Yeah. And I'm just so excited to have this partnership where I'm going to focus on the stuff that I really like doing most and where that I where my so my sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And then Mike's going to help figure out the sales and marketing piece. Got it. Okay. Going back to your uh, knowledge and uh, passion around hiring. You have this infamous seven-day rule. Is that still an effect of knowing you meet someone? And It is, and I try to train the executives here when they hire that I want them to do that when they first hear a name. And the reason is you want to energize the candidate. And I don't think you make bad decisions when you go quickly as long as you have a process for how you evaluate at each step and how you use your team. So I have a pretty disciplined process for how we do that. Mm-hmm. There are certain positions, like when you're hiring a CEO, that's a really big decision for the company. <laughs> so I probably spent... I mean, the, the entire process with Mike Volpe took probably three weeks. Wow. But in my first meeting, I was recruiting him as a CMO. Mm-hmm. And then when I, we had a three-hour dinner at um, Lolita's here in Fort Point. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking during the dinner, wow, this guy's 
probably a much better CEO than I am, so I should just give him the CEO title. And that's how it all. And that's how it started. Yeah, that's great. Um, something else that I thought was really interesting is um, you've said that a contract recruiter is your most important hire. Can you like what do you like why? Whoever's going to lead hiring for your company has to be someone who's passionate about hiring. And if you are running a company and there's two founders or three founders, one of you has to be the one who really is obsessed with checking the hiring dashboard every day, the applicant tracking system, whatever it is that you're using, whether it's a Google spreadsheet or a QuickBase. And someone needs to be managing that queue of candidates. And if you don't have someone managing that, looking at it several times a day, you should bring on board a recruiter who does that for you. And I like making sure that recruiter is in the face of the hiring managers and talking to them all the time. And the recruiter doesn't have to be on site, but I like getting close to my recruiters so you get to know each other really well. Mm -hmm. And the more the recruiter knows you, the better job he or she will do in sending you candidates that fit your culture. And every founder should apply that. Just, you know, my background being recruiting. Like the ones that uh, I got to know the founders the best, absolutely you were able to just service them and it ended up being a better fit for the people too yeah definitely so how do you know you know you have this bar for talent you know hire the best at what point like is it within like the first couple minutes of meeting someone that you just have a hunch or how do you actually figure out that this person's someone that's going to fit within your guidelines of hiring i mean you want someone obviously who's sharp and i think you can assess that pretty quickly by talking to someone Mm -hmm. and then the other thing you want is someone who's very focused on winning teams. I like people who are music- musicians that played in bands and can talk about their bands. Mm-hmm. I like athletes who not are tennis players or swimmers, but athletes who've played on teams, played football or basketball or baseball. Mm-hmm. And when they talk about their championship baseball team, you want them really talking about how the whole team worked together. And when you talk to musicians, you want them talking about how the band plays together. And there's some people who just innately have that focus on, here's how I'm going to perform with other people. And I think it translates from the field uh, into the boardroom. So I like people who sort of grew up and are trained on team-based thinking. So if I have someone who's really sharp and they're very team-oriented and they can articulate the teams they played on or done business with before and the role everyone had, those are generally people I really want on my team. You've obviously had a high degree of success throughout your career. So why do you keep building companies? Um, I like assembling teams and a company is a way to assemble a team. I also do a lot of nonprofit work. I'm on six nonprofit boards, three of which are nonprofits that I started. And that's just another opportunity for me to create teams. Do you find a need? Um, whether it's homelessness or education or healthcare, and you form a team around solving that problem or improving uh, that problem. And to me, each of my, Lola's my fifth company, and each company, I try to make the team stronger than the prior one. And I love watching people perform. I get excited about when someone has a design that's better than mine, or someone can do something faster than I thought they could do it. I just get really excited seeing people perform and seeing people perform together. So work's just really, really fun for me. And, and the charitable work, um, so you've been 
I've, I've heard you say that your goal is to um, liquidate your wealth by the age of 80. Yeah. So, so talk about your, your work with the charity organizations that you're involved in. So I am on six boards, uh, Partners in Health with Dr. Paul Farmer. We do healthcare in 10 countries. Village Health Works in Burundi, which is building a medical system in that country, which has been a very interesting learning lesson for me about how to start a medical organization from scratch. Humanity Rises, which does refugee relief. I'm actually going to Bangladesh in October to visit a Rohingya uh, refugee camp for the Rohingya Minari that has fled Myanmar due to some unbelievable atrocities there. And then the three nonprofits that I've started are Summits Education, which is a uh, set of schools in rural Haiti. We have 40 schools, 350 teachers, and 10,000 students. And I'm the major donor. And... um, board member kind of driving that that's been an extraordinarily exciting vision those schools grew out of partners in health but um, we ended up forming a new organization and taking over those schools a few years ago that's been really fun there's I do a lot of work with homeless groups in Boston and we organize an annual event called the winter walk and that is all about raising awareness of homeless and trying to get homeless and home people to talk to each other one of the most difficult things about being homeless from the homeless people that I know is that no one ever calls you by your name and no one makes eye contact with you. And if you think about what it would be like to live in a city where there's no human contact, it would be a pretty lonely place to be. Mm-hmm. And these are people who are struggling with addiction or mental health issues or both. Uh, and so we try to make a connection between homeless and home people. And that's just been a phenomenal event. We have homeless people give talks and formerly homeless people give talks. It's, it's just a very exciting inspirational day that hopefully inspires people to action and then the last one is a nonprofit I started last September called MLK Boston and what we're trying to do is most Bostonians don't realize that Martin Luther King Jr. had very formative years of his career in Boston he got his PhD here at Boston University he lived in the South End he preached at 12 Baptist he met Coretta in Boston she was a student at New England Conservatory of Music they fell in love in Boston it's where they hang out they went on dates together they got married, they lived here, and someone needs to tell that story, and someone needs to think about if Dr. King was alive today in 2018 and lived in the city of Boston, and he wanted to improve the city of Boston, what would he work on today? And so we actually have five different things we're working on, all related on bringing King back to life in Boston. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really fun project. And I knew uh, the Boston University connection, but I didn't know all the other pieces that you mentioned. That's awesome. Um, you recently had a, a book published about you, uh, a truck full of money. What was that like having, you know, an actual book written about you and your life? Yeah, it was crazy, and it was also written by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, which has <laughs> put a lot of big focus on it. Uh, so Tracy Kidder, I met him in Haiti in two thousand and three, and when he had approached me, I guess it was four years ago now. I, let me think when it was. No, I was at Kayak. It must have been. 2012 when he approached me maybe to ask me if he could do a book I said no because that seems really weird to someone write a book about you it seemed really uncomfortable (laughs) but I said if you want to write about tech though I know a really lot of cool people in tech so let me introduce you to some other people that I think are more interesting subjects than me Mm -hmm. so I introduced him to some other people that I wanted him to write about and after a few months of him following me around I went to California together met a bunch of people in Boston he basically said yeah you know a lot of interesting people uh, which is why I want to write it about you. And so we kind of negotiated about what that might look like. And, 
you know, my main rule, as I said, and this sounds like a funny thing to say, but I said, don't make the book make me look better than I am because I was fearful that someone would write this book and try to make someone sound really good and I'd have to live up to it for the rest of my life. Yeah. And the funny thing is when the book came out, one of my friends in Haiti read it and he said, Tracy did a good job making you not seem better than you are, which I thought was kind of a hilarious yeah. side. I don't know if that was a compliment <laughs> or not. But anyway, Tracy had lived with me halftime for one year. Wow. And then the second year he wrote the book. And then the third year he did fact checking and, and edited it. And he was, he's like an investigative journalist. It's crazy. I think he told me he wrote 3,000 pages for what became a 300-page book. And the amount of research he did was ridiculous. He, um, he found people from my childhood, took them out to dinner. It got pretty intimate. So it was a three-year process. Three-year project, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just, uh, it, it is a great book. I mean, you do totally open up, and there's a lot that you uh, share, which I just think is meaningful for people in general to read, but also entrepreneurs, because there's, you know, entrepreneurs that um, you hear about that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, and there's depression, and there's a lot involved with, uh, you know, building companies. Um, one, one last question. So I'm envisioning in your mind, you must have like ideas constantly. Like it just must be a thing that you're constantly thinking of. And um, one of your ideas, actually, I think it was in the book, was um, a precursor to Uber, right? Didn't you like it was called Snap Cab was something yeah. you were thinking of that was like, ta- you know, disrupting the taxi industry. Yeah. So I met with Larry Malta. Larry was the CEO of Boston Coach. And it was back when Kayak had, we hit our first million users, which I think was 2010 maybe. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to Larry and saying, we could put a button in here called Black Car and it would get you a car because we have GPS, we know where it is. And Larry liked the idea and he asked me if I would come back and meet with his executive team. So I wrote a full presentation with the design and I presented it to him and his executive team hated it <laughs> and they kind of threw up on it. Never so, I was an idiot. I went back to Kayak and pitched it to my co-founder. He said, huge distraction. Please don't work on this. Now, <laughs> Steve was probably right because had I worked on it, I probably would have screwed it up. And I probably would have screwed up Kayak right. at the same time. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's more of a lesson of ideas are not worth anything. Yeah. The only thing that matters is execution. But I do suffer from too many ideas and I definitely have a shiny object problem. Uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine told me it was exhausting to hang out with me because of all the things I would pitch her <laughs> on a daily basis. I think I have 250 domain names, and with every domain name, there's a business idea. I'll tell you one that I had this morning with Scott Cook. He and I had breakfast at Henrietta's table yeah. in Harvard Square. We were talking about um, meetings, how many meetings we all attend, and sometimes your calendar owns you and how stressful that is. Mm-hmm. I was saying there should be an app called Calendar Score, and what it should do is it should email everyone at your company at Friday at 5, it shows you all your meetings and you just click on the five meetings that you liked that week. Just go click, 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 click. Hmm. And then option can ask you things like for particular meetings you clicked on, did it have an agenda? Were there action items that it start on time? And then on Monday morning, two types of emails go out. One email goes to the entire company saying, these are the top three meetings run last week. So you try to reinforce who's really good at running meetings and right. you pat them on the back. And then there's a second set of emails that goes to every manager in the company confidentially. It says, by the way, you were the 29th best meeting. <laughs> run a last better week. meeting. Yeah, run a better meeting. Here's why. That's great feedback. Yeah, so I, I registered calendarscore.com and someday I might build that out. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, Paul, thanks so much for you know taking the time to walk us through your history and all the great stories. Uh, there's obviously a, a lot to cover there, and we could you know talk for hours. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.